On today's episode of the Sleep Whisperer podcast, I'm talking to my dear friend Vaish about sleep among children with special needs. Dr. Vaishnavi Sarathi is a functional nutrition practitioner, a TEDx speaker and a podcast host. She's passionate about giving kids a fair chance at life through nutrition that sustains them, food that prevents autoimmunity, nutrients that boost brain function and a digestive system that works with the thriving microbiome. Vaish is a functional nutrition educator with two masters and a PhD in environmental chemistry. Her life changed when her son was born with Down syndrome and later diagnosed with autism. She explored conventional options for the first four years of his life including occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, communication therapy, doctors and I'm sure if you have a child with a disability you've gone down this route several times only to be left frustrated. Every practitioner she met told her that genetics could not be helped and that she must resign to having a child who would experience extreme intellectual delay with minimal chances at life. She didn't believe in this and today her son at 13 does algebra, writes poetry and he's non-speaking. She believes that an equal, accessible education and sound nutrition are the birthright of every child. In this episode, we dive deep into how sleep impacts children with disability, what are the practices that haven't worked, what are practices that can work, and how can some very popular sleep supplements actually make sleep worse in children with disability. What is the best way to eat and what's the idea behind low-carb diets for children with disability? Vaish and I have a wonderful conversation as we always do when we meet each other. And this episode is filled with explosive takeaways. If you do have a friend who has a child with a disability, do share it with them. Take a listen, enjoy the show today and again I do urge you to just take two minutes of your time if you like the work that we do on the show to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. It would mean the world to us and it would help us to get our message to a wider audience. Welcome to the Sleep Whisperer Podcast. I'm your host Deepa. Join me and my many expert guests and medical professionals from the cutting-edge science of functional medicine of the West and ancient wisdom of the East. Learn all about how to discover your root causes of poor sleep and understand the proper tools and techniques to end your confusion and begin getting a good night's sleep. It's time to regain hope and begin your sleep journey with the Sleep Whisperer podcast. Vaish, welcome to the Sleep Whisperer podcast and always a pleasure to have conversations with you. And it's been a long time since we had a conversation. So this is a great topic today. Uh, We're talking about sleep and uh, the intersection 
with children of special needs so you really have so much to offer and uh, before we actually go into our full conversation uh, tell us about how what brought you to this area you're so passionate about it you have your own podcast function nutrition for kids which is all about special needs so that's a great resource for many parents and i myself have shared it with plenty of them so let's just listen to your story and right from the start to what brought you into this area of nutrition focusing on special needs uh, so first share your story with us yeah first of all i'm super happy to be here i always love recording with you um and like you said it's been a really long time so i miss our conversations but uh, so coming to my story like many of us um, at least uh, like some of us have come into the field of nutrition it's through my son my son has multiple disabilities including um, down syndrome and autism he also has really poor motor skills and he struggles with his vision a little bit he's 13 years old right now but when he was um when he was up till about when he was 3 and a half to 4 we were on a very standard standard healthy diet so it wasn't a standard american diet it was a standard healthy diet it was what we thought we were feeding him well but he Uh, he struggled with issues that were above and beyond his disability so he wasn't struggling with the down syndrome it wasn't that so i mean you can still thrive while having a disability as um, i'm sure the listeners know but he he had a um, lot of gut dysbiosis which we didn't recognize at the time and we were running from alternative doctor to alternative doctor so this we were already in the field of alternative medicine and still not getting our answers and at the time i um, started consulting with some nutritionists at what is now the functional nutrition alliance and um i was thinking that given my background as a chemist i thought that this is something that i should learn instead of hunting for answers let me start learning this and then so it's been a journey of uh, many years right now but um so when when i started learning i found that i could uh, not just apply these principles to my son but also to um friends kids and then their friends kids and then slowly the circle expanded and it it just felt at the time like such necessary knowledge and it still does um but i would definitely say that my son's health has been uh, transformed by many children's health have been transformed by functional nutrition but for me specifically learning this has um has been the biggest uh, tool that i have used in um our lives so but uh, just tell us a little bit about how you felt when you first um, your baby was born and then what was the first diagnosis that you got and how did you f- actually feel about it because mindset emotion has such a big role to play in um, how a parent approaches something so just share mm-hmm. that first well unfortunately we were uh, still in the dark ages where um, this was 13 years old where when a child is born with uh, with down syndrome you you have a doctor coming to you with a really grave face and uh, and being so very sorry to give you the news and telling you giving you predictions about what your child can do in the future so our doctor came and said i'm very sorry to that he has trisomy 21 and all the cells in his body and that you know some children with down syndrome become 
um, uh, can work in grocery stores, they can become uh, cashiers, they can handle money. And you know, none of this makes the situation any better. So, it, uh, so it's, it's presented to you as this huge tragedy. So, and of course I was in tears, I was in denial and I was like, oh my God, how can this happen to me? And uh, for a year, uh, I didn't uh, tell anybody that he has Down syndrome. I was like, okay, if we pretend that this didn't happen, maybe, you know, magically things will resolve themselves. So um, it, was, it was still in my mind something to fix, right? Something that, okay, we need to get. And in that, at that time, when I was working, um, when I was slowly getting exposed to what we call the biomed uh, world, it was still that we need to fix Down syndrome, okay? So we need, as though, that can be something that can be fixed. But even so, it, it is, um, perhaps I'll address this later in the podcast, as looking at disability as something to be fixed is, is definitely a mindset that I do not recommend right now. Okay, so, but mm -hmm. that, that was absolutely, I was firmly in that mode for a long time, even though I didn't make any changes in the diet, I, my mind was like, we need to get out of this uh, situation. And, um, and it took, I definitely, it's, it's um, the mindset had a huge negative role to play at the time because it took years for me to come to terms with the fact that this is our life and this is how we're going to thrive. Okay. And that when I, when I accepted my son's diagnosis, when, when I knew that he is what he is because of his diagnosis and this is how he's going to thrive is when our lives transform for the better. So um, at the age of um, three and a half to four, when we met with, um, we met with another three and a half year old girl with Down syndrome because I'd been avoiding people with Down syndrome till then. And then I, I with the shock, realized that what my son has isn't Down syndrome at, at any rate. It isn't just Down syndrome because this kid is reading from cards. She's making eye contact. She's talking to her mom. And I was like, oh my God, something else is happening. And because of my own denial, I had no idea. And then mm -hmm. when I um, I myself sought a diagnosis because it was very obvious and everybody looked like all his therapists already knew somehow nobody had said anything that he also had a diagnosis of autism. In the later years, he's also accumulated a suspected diagnosis of cerebral palsy because of his low muscle tone. It is something that's very hard to prove given that he already has diagnoses and it's too late, but, and it also doesn't matter that much um, mm. to just accumulate diagnoses, but um, uh, so it, it, I have definitely moved from a state of um, self-pity and uh, denial uh, to a state of tolerance and trying to fix things and, you know, I'm going to get my son better and so on. And I will show the world how smart my son is to, un to understanding that, oh my God, he, I don't need to show anybody. He already has everything he needs to thrive. I just need to step out of the way and make sure that the environment, the diet, um, my mindset doesn't come in the way of his thriving. Mm -hmm. So right now I would, I would completely categorize my approach in one word, which is getting out of the way. Getting out of the way does not mean not doing anything because if you are uh, giving your child junk, you are definitely in the way. If you are, right. um, if you are not uh, allowing your child to get a good night's sleep, if you're not, um, uh, you know, in, in so many, when I say not allowing, I don't mean that in a, like you're actually of preventing, course. but yeah. yeah, if you're not, um, actively helping your child thrive with food and sleep. I think some, in some way we are getting in the way, right? So yes. I get out of the way by making sure the immediate environment is, is uh, accessible and allows him to thrive beyond that. Uh, and, and that I presume competence in him. So it's an active getting out of the way. 
You know, Vaish, it's very interesting when you spoke about your denial to fix it mentality. My mind went back to somebody who had told me her first son had uh, autism. And then when she was pregnant, she said she consciously told the doctors that she did not want to check anything and she said told me that even if he's three years old I don't even want to check I would rather not know than to get a second child with a diagnosis so I'm sure a lot of parents actually go through similar things but coming back to sleep among children with special needs I know that we've had some odd conversations at very odd hours of the mm-hmm. night for you and uh, uh, I've been surprised by why are you awake at this time and it's usually because uh, Sid has been awake and had some issues sleeping. So, And I also spoke to another mother after that who spoke a lot about sleep challenges whom I refer to you as well. And uh, so do you think that Sleep is a major issue among children with special needs. And is it uh, falling asleep? Is it staying asleep? Is there a whole lot more to that? So what does it look like? Okay. Um, I'm going to be using the word disability more than I use the word um, special needs because overall in that field, there is that movement. from the fact from from using the word special needs to using the word disabilities no right or wrong but i i, I will when i use the word disabilities i'm talking about the same thing i just want to make okay. that uh, uh, um, because i think a lot of adults are trying to say that our needs are not special we have the same needs as you uh, but we have a disability but i also know that there are some parents who don't enough. like to use the word disability yeah. but anyway so uh, moving on as you know that every disability is, um, it's not even the disability, a child can be medic, two children can have Down syndrome and can both have very different medical complexities, especially in the world of autism, this is really true. Because uh, just yesterday I had recorded a podcast with a statistician who was telling me why so many studies on autism dietary research are inconclusive, is because they take five kids with autism and they are, they are doing, they're say removing gluten and they're saying nothing is happening. But those five, in a study, you should have like similar people receiving a similar intervention and they think they are similar because they have autism. But if you look inside, biochemically, they can be completely different. They're what's going on. So this is true for everybody, you and me. Similarly, it's true for children with Down syndrome because if they are genetically similar, you and I are also genetically similar, but we have different medical issues, biochemical issues. Similarly, um, it is true for autism. So yes, many children with disabilities have a higher um, uh, rate of sleep disturbances, higher occurrence of sleep disturbances. It's very, very common. The reasons will be different for every one of them, but here are the few things that often occur in many children with Down syndrome and autism and perhaps other issues too. Um, Number one is sleep apnea. Okay, so the structural, with Down syndrome, this is a huge thing, okay? Both obstructive and central sleep apnea, it's it's huge and um, often undiagnosed. And it mm. needs to be the number one thing that needs to be addressed because with my son, we jumped through many hoops because I didn't want to remove his tonsils and adenoids because I was like, okay, these are lymph nodes. I'm not going to remove them. Ultimately, I had to remove them. Otherwise, um, I would definitely not go first to removal. I would try other things. But I would rem- remember that for some, when you're dealing with sleep apnea, 
if you don't get that out of the way, there's really like, it's like, I would say a first barrier to further progression. It doesn't have to be uh, a structural, sometimes inflammation can cause sleep apnea too. But um, uh, so that, that's very common in children with Down syndrome. In, in children with autism, it can be sleep apnea. It can also be multi, um, micronutrient deficiencies are very common. And um, so those, and, and just, and gut dysbiosis. If I had to take three, um, actually I have like four big common areas that there's sleep apnea, there's gut dysbiosis, there's micronutrient deficiencies, and there's um, cortisol imbalances. So there's just chronic, um, both physical and mental stress. Hmm. Yeah. Yes, and adrenal dysregulation, and come, it can come from physical, internal uh, biochemical stress, but it can also come from the mental stress of living in a world that is not made for them. Of course, that's a big stressor. In fact, there's another conversation I had with a psychiatrist who spoke so much, he broke it up into the stressor, the stress response, Mm. And uh, each of us, how do we identify what is our unique stressor that plays such a big role? And definitely children with disabilities will have so many stressors and which probably they cannot even uh, pro um, uh, break down for themselves as what are those stressors. I mean, it takes a, probably a very intuitive, aware parent to be able to make those connections like you did. And uh, of course, gut dysbiosis, I've heard a lot in connection with disabilities. Mm. Uh, sleep apnea is something I'm hearing for the very first time. So is that something, can you speak a little bit more? Is that to do with the structural aspect? Often, in Down syndrome? Yeah, often the, with Down syndrome, you, you, everybody has noticed that the face structure is different. Yes. You can see a child and know that they have Down syndrome. It's yes. because, the, it's because uh, the middle third of their face um, is, is, it develops a little differently than the middle third of our face, which means that the, I think it's the sphenoid one. I'm not an expert in this area, but I'm, I would recommend that this is a great area for you yes. to talk to an osteopathic yes. physician too. So, um, um, so because they um, I, I, remind me to talk about osteopathic work because this is like really big in has been really big in sleep apnea for us. Um, mm. So this this the middle third area is um, underdeveloped would not be it's just developed differently. So it can it can um, it can cause um, give less room for the pituitary to grow. That is one way. So that could be like a, a pituitary induced sleep apnea, but it can also give less room for the nasal. Um, passages and for like um and some that's the second and the third is that when you have low muscle tone which is often the case in down syndrome right. the tongue can that be can. and it can, it can block like for my son we know that when he sleeps like this his tongue falls back into the airway so no amount of magnesium supplementation is going to fix that right. in fact it can make it worse because it can it um, relaxes it too much exactly so you want to be careful when we're doing supplementation, because we're all like, yes, magnesium for sleep. And like, you know, if it gets worse, then you're, you know that you're actually making the sleep apnea worse. You don't want too much relaxation. Your body needs to maintain a tone to breathe in and breathe out and keep the correct muscles out of the way of the um, breathing passages. See, this is why I love talking to you, Vaish, because I'm also, one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is that trying to get away from this aspect that sleep challenges are just universal, take melatonin, take magnesium, 
everything will be fine and you and i both know that there's so much more to it as it was very interesting in fact um what you said about uh, magnesium making it worse i've actually witnessed this in a couple of clients not with disabilities but seeing um, this uh, causing numbness in the arm because of excessive uh, relaxation so the moment the magnesium came out they were absolutely fine um so tell me a little bit about before we go into actually how can you help children with disabilities talk to us about what hasn't worked so what all have you tried which hasn't worked i mean what you just said was perfect about magnesium not helping if the situation is like this with sleep apnea so tell me a little bit more go into as much detail as you can on all that you've tried which hasn't worked for you um so let me be specific for said in that case for my son because yes. um because obviously like everything will work for somebody so every starting from melatonin everything will work yes. for somebody but um here is the thing the first thing i want to say is that melatonin is not a cure all you just said this but um but it is heavily promoted in the in the in the alternative um, medicine community where and it should be it's it's it can be very miraculous when like it can it can be a very easy first medicine to try okay first sub first supplement to try but it can um it can get very addictive and i want to say that we're still trying to get because our son's sleep was so disturbed and because because melatonin seemed to make it better we have been giving melatonin for years now and i'm not able to phase off it i'm not too disturbed by it of all things i'm okay with the melatonin addiction but it can cause it it can be habit forming um so melatonin is not a cure all and i would definitely think about it as a bandaid okay so um and it is not uh, it is not a root cause medicine at all even though it it is it looks like oh you're doing something very holistic melatonin is is a bandaid and i'm guilty of doing that bandaid it's fine but you have to remember that it's a bandaid Wait before you go further. I want to stop you for a second because is there something wrong in melatonin being addictive? Because I have heard that it's one of the things that is safe to be used long term. I've also heard the other side of it where people say it's not okay to use long term. But mostly, I've heard that it's one of those nutrients which is fairly safe for longer term use. So tell me about that. Study. That's the only thing that this is. We are literally the first group of people. people that are using melatonin long term my son may be like if somebody does a study he may be like one of the participants in that using it for over 8 years he's it's fine we don't so and and we know that um it i've heard both sides of it but it's there is a negative feedback a lot of it uh, in implies that the gland needs to produce less signals to produce that particular hormone and also melatonin is a hormone and we know that high levels of melatonin can can affect sleep so for example one of the things that i found with my son was that we were going up and up because that's what our doctor had told us that keep increasing it's good for you and it's it's relaxing for him and finally something was not working was just not going to sleep so um i just rapidly reduced the dosage of melatonin from about we were doing 6 mg to half a mg and he promptly went to sleep and mm-hmm. then as we kept it low so we know from experience and many clinicians know this from experience that high doses of melatonin can actually impact uh, sleep in a negative fashion 
it uh, in some people right so we i just feel that it's a very uh, it's definitely protective towards numerous things including um, you know bone density and like and stuff like that so it's 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 an incredible thing but it's still um, a supplement that your body is supposed to produce internally i'm just not comfortable with long term usage being a person who does long term usage i have uh, i don't know what i have done to my son's sleep it's it's still something that i would prefer to face out and see if a person can regulate it by themselves things said that it's not my biggest concern i think it's good for somebody who's used long term like you to be actually giving that caution because most often you'll hear the other way around when someone's using something long term they will swear by it and say it has nothing wrong at all so it's in a very uh, thoughtful of you to actually bring in caution there so anything else that didn't work for you um long long term magnesium usage didn't work so every supplement that we have tried um every every intervention that we have tried has always been like it would start off great it would work and then it would rapidly stop working and then it would become against this is a um great way to remember that sleep is multifactorial and if you try to fix it using one thing and keep hammering that it can first work because you are addressing perhaps some pathways of sleep and then because you are so addressing only one pathway and something else is getting neglected i think it's really important to remember that one, uh, my biggest it's not that there are specific interventions that didn't work for us i can't say that i would say nothing worked for us in the long term because it's very clear that we're addressing one thing at a time and then one thing and then one thing and um my son is just so medically um, biochemically complex without we the complexity is that we have to keep rotating interventions right now the um, right now lowering his cortisol at night is working for him using supplementation um however uh, i know that at some point it will it will be so low that we'll have to remember that okay we need to stop and move on so don't get attached to an intervention is my is my only thing that what doesn't work is getting attached to an intervention and doing it long term blindly um and not checking back to see if it works if even if someone says that you should do this for the rest of your life very interesting you know why this reminds me of how uh, somebody told me a while ago that anything which you keep using becomes like just daily foods then your body even stops listening to it uh, so there are people who use something which is meant to be therapeutic and short term and then because it's so helpful it somehow just continues into long term i think we are all guilty of doing that somewhere so that's a interesting point now tell me about the other way around because there is a bidirectional axis isn't it between children of disabilities and sleep issues so while they can have challenges with sleep because they are constantly having sleep challenges does that actually impact behavior attention mood everything else so is this the bidirectional axis that you see a vicious cycle of course yes absolutely so it's it's it is bidirectional and as we all know that you know there is uh, sleep is is a non negotiable and then we can forget about learning focus energy mood all of your you know four things usually when people are looking for a child what are they looking for if they're looking for medical help they're looking for increasing focus increasing energy modulating mood and you know um learning disabilities and so on and um when i say where as you know i keep talking about presuming competence and all that like we cannot uh, 
we this is part of that because you cannot diagnose a child with learning disabilities if they're not sleeping well even we will have learning disabilities if we don't sleep yeah well. absolutely yeah so i think that like in anything that you're doing with a child if they're not sleeping forget about everything else and get there first so you this is what we talk about as tier one Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. So tell me about what has worked for you. Are there some patterns you're seeing in terms of setting a rhythm for your son? Is there, I mean, um, I also came across Vaish, somebody who said that it unnerves my child to sleep in a dark room. So I always have a light on and I've also got used to sleeping like that. So is there some sort of a pattern that you've set where you create some rhythm? What about light and dark? What about the food that you give to him? What about that plate? Talk to us about a sleep plate. Okay, uh, definitely. Yeah, so the, the rhythms that work for every child are going to be different. But in terms of what, um, um, are, you are you asking about like the few things that work for everybody? Is that-, is that Generally uh, for children with disabilities, what would you say would be more common practices which would actually support sleep? Setting yeah, so the first thing would be blood sugar balancing because especially mm -hmm. so you were talking about how do you know what are the you know um, what are the patterns that you see if you see a child getting up with some um, aggression anger complete very irritated mood and so on so you want to that that is like a very big sign to me that you know you are waking up with a very low blood sugar or it could even be higher blood sugar that's automatically you know it could even be it could be because blood sugar is disrupting sleep, sleep is disrupting blood sugar, all of that, right? We know that cortisol and blood sugar have this intimate cycle. So um, the first thing, again, we always want to start with the low hanging fruit. So the most easiest thing to do is to make sure that the child is sleeping at night with a meal that's balanced in fat, fiber, and protein. And if there is a gap between, um, if there is a significant gap between dinner and sleep, this is absolutely where I first go, is that we do like a banana, pumpkin seed, um, um, you know, a little bit of ghee, even if the child can tolerate before sleeping, um, or just a cookie made with some nut and seed flowers. Yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm, I don't mean like a super sweet cookie, I mean like very minimally sweet cookie, but um, so something to make sure that the child has some protein before they go to sleep. So that brings us back to the plate. Um, so the plate for to me looks, um, uh, uh, the plate has enough vegetables throughout the day and a little bit of protein okay and that protein can be um, is ideally from at least a little bit of seeds because um, seeds are so awesome because they you know you get your micronutrients ticked off you get uh, some really nice protein um, and uh, and between I mean I, I feel like they they are the most neglected source of both of these things I mean we're always like veggie 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 and other stuff but I like just by rotating your seeds there's so much that can be done and it's easy to get into these, you know, uh, in get into a lot of recipes instead of having supplements. So blood sugar balancing would be definitely, uh, I, I've seen many children where, you know, just getting a little late night um, bedtime snack of some protein um, really helps them stay asleep and also helps them wake up with a more stable mood. So that would be something that you want to see if mood is affected, if your child is waking up in the middle of the night. That would be the first thing I would try. 
ऑब्वियसली is there a way that maybe they can have maybe more uh, broken down have you noticed any difference between raw foods cooked foods anything like that absolutely yeah so i'm definitely children can have that and beyond that many children self restrict their eating where them they may not even want to have their vegetables right so i think you brought a very important point like we have to go um while blood sugar balance is the lowest hanging fruit that we can get like about at the same level but perhaps a little bit higher is gut dysbiosis and and your digestive capacity so um in a way that you um i would actually i would say that probably equal it's easier to do like have something at night and see if that helps but if that doesn't help it may be because you're not absorbing your protein your stomach acid is not sufficient or you just mm-hmm. have you know all sort of pathogens growing in your gut so um even before yes um even before we talk about cooked and raw vegetables i would i would i would probably um, worry about you know protein absorption because i see so many kids that are chronically bloated and um addressing stomach acid is would be would be definitely a number one priority because um you can't even do the blood sugar balancing if you're not digesting your food well very so, good point but talk to us about how what's a safe thing that parents can do for their children to improve digestion stomach acid something without maybe going into the realm of uh, supplements where they may be out of scope to understand side effects but what safe things that they can do to improve and support their child's digestion remember that if you especially if you have a child with down syndrome there's a high chance that you're not chewing your food well because of oral motor issues if you have yeah. a child who's a so called picky eater um that you can also uh, your child may be may be experiencing lot of textural issues in your mouth so we we know that we all have to start with the mouth right so before we even go into stomach acid and all so is your child smelling the food is your child averse to smells is your child able to smell so you know a lot of times these eating issues are because a child has lost an ability to smell because of could be because of a zinc deficiency it could be something neurological also but we want to make sure that the pre the pre stomach process is the cephalic phase of the digestion is working well right like let's i would i would really not trivialize the chewing and the smelling part because it can actually not be occurring in many children because in us it is easy to say we'll just say oh just enjoy your food but with a child especially if a child has disabilities you want to see how is that how are they addressing their food how are they accessing their food are they just you know are you know how sometimes parents will you know the children are seeing the tv and they're so desperate for the child to eat mm. stuff water stuff water right that can really affect your digestion i mean like yeah. anything you know it is I I'm not saying this for children who are chronically like you know if your child has is having failure to thrive I'm not this is not what I'm talking about but um you need to sometimes get calories in but it's more important about how they eat than the fact that they're just you just stuffing stuff in their faces so because it can really affect digestion but once the once the enjoyment is taken care of once you once we get into a healthy relationship with food one of the easiest things to do is lemon water before meals 
and sometimes children will have it only with a little bit of raw honey and that's okay um, preferably without but the other thing that really works is trikatu the ayurvedic herb so trikatu can be um, game changing actually so um, so how I, can a parent actually use that like a little bit um, so trikatu is a equal mixture of ginger long pepper and black pepper and you can just get it anywhere in india but you can also get it in the us um so if a child is not swallowing capsules i would um you know just mix it with a little bit of ghee or mix it with your rice and give it as the first meal i would it can be a little spicy so i would taste it first to see whether you think your child can tolerate it so i would just use a quarter teaspoon or less but it really kick starts digestion it's like one of um, so um, can it be mixed with honey i i'm sure it can uh, i think uh, i haven't ever done it i i usually mix it with like the food itself i kind of wrap the food around and or like if there's some soup i'll just have them swallow the soup or if it's a capsule i'll have them swallow one capsule about 15 minutes before but i it can be mixed with honey it remember because it is ginger and black pepper and long pepper it will be a little spicy but i've had it myself the spice has never been a deterrent for me i would always recommend in these cases that the parent try depending on the child sensitivity um if the child has ulcers um or uh, some inflammation in the in in the food pipe then i would reconsider actually i would reconsider both lemon water and that then at that point you want to heal the inflammation before you go there but yeah how can a parent know if their child i mean because this is probably a child where they're not able to ask or uh, they might not always be able to have a conversation regarding how do you feel symptoms so how can uh, how would a parent know this behavior often times you know after food if like shortly after food the child's behavior significantly worsens when the child okay this is like one of uh this is something i've been meaning to say because acid reflux can be a big reason why why some children with disabilities don't sleep because when they get into the lying position your um acid comes back up to your throat and um which can be due to low stomach acid it can also be due to low muscle tone so in that case um if you find that a child has sleep disturbances and the child has behavioral issues um when i say behavioral issues i don't even like using the term but when the child gets angry or like starts getting very un- uncharacteristically irritated a little bit after a meal um these are generally signs of um some irritation happening in the in the throat they can be so it might be worth checking out or if the child um, you know giving lemon water makes the child um, anything citrus or sour or some a slightly acidic makes the child very uncomfortable or restless those are signs so usually um children with acid reflux and or any inflammation in the throat are very very miserable as would be understood because it's very painful and so you can see that uh, there should be some indication that your child is uncomfortable or in pain even after sleeping when the child wakes up if the child is like crying and um you know really unhappy and so on those are times that you should check for uh, you know acid reflux because it's not so uncommon an acid reflux can therefore then cause continual acid reflux can cause inflammation of the um uh, food pipe very interesting why so again i'm going to come back to what i asked you earlier so would you find that uh, for other parents with children having disabilities it might be a good place to start by breaking down the food a little bit because you did speak about 
uh, inability to break down bloating. So is it something that you found where maybe soups and uh, cooked vegetables might do better for children versus something like a raw salad or a smoothie? Have you noticed any, any difference? I have not noticed because a lot of the children that I see aren't even ready to have a raw um, salad. But see, mm. the thing is, what is the child ready to have is another thing. Yes, for any child with um, with some level of gut issues, you want to go to more cooked food. So in fact, any most of the healing diets like GAPS and so on, they'll start with a broth and you know boiled vegetables. That That is much easier. But we also want to start with where the child is. So if, um, if you're on a healing diet, you might automatically be doing that. If you're not doing that, it's definitely worth considering to do that to see if that helps because it will definitely help with the easy digestion and nutrient absorption. But with, I know that with some of my kids, um, the only way they'll have vegetables is in a smoothie. Um, putting cooked vegetables in a smoothie, actually, I find those tastier than raw vegetables. So um, like yeah, I do too. in a smoothie, cooked beets give yeah. a better taste. So it's, it's yes. worth trying, uh, depending on where your child is and if they will tolerate it, it's worth trying. It can be helpful for sure. Very interesting. So Vaish, we did speak a little bit about the sleep food plate for children with disabilities, but I want to ask you a little bit more about uh, how, whether you find any difference if, if a child is really struggling to sleep and having the vicious cycle effect of further mood fluctuations, behavior fluctuations, learning challenges. Um, do you find a difference between putting the child on an animal-based versus a plant-based diet? Um, personally, I have not uh, encountered this, but in, in uh, anecdotes, there are man, uh, many, many, many cases where, you know, like most of the healing diets that are accessible for children with autism are, um, are heavily animal-based. Yeah, animal yeah, exactly. That's why I'm asking you this. Uh, because most of them speak about uh, the certain nutrients that come from animal proteins, which are very critical for uh, these children. That's why I want to talk to you about what have you done personally? Has your son ever been plant-based or is he more animal-based? And what have you found him um, benefiting from? So... This is a hard question to answer, but I'll answer from my personal context because it's hard because I actually don't know the answer and I'm questioning yes. that, that line right now. So as you know, yes. but, uh, um, so this is our journey is that when we started, we were on a typical uh, South Indian diet with, you know, my son used to eat chapatis and milk and stuff, which is like, I, I'm like hitting my head now when I even think about that. He used to only eat chapatis and drink milk till he was four. No wonder he had so much. <laughs> yeah. And before we go into that, I should clarify to our listeners that we're uh, joking about this because in the anti-inflammatory world, the uh, gluten and dairy are real big villains. And that's why we're joking about this diet, which your son was on. Yeah. And I think that I'm sure that this has come across many times in your podcast and it'll come many more times about gluten and dairy. But um, if like, let's just, let me just make that point is that when, when my son was pretty much only on gluten and dairy, he was, uh, and that's how it is because when children are sensitive to it, they cannot eat anything else. They'll get very addicted to it. Um, 
um, some naturopaths that I'd seen had recommended that they go off. And I would say, but he only eats chapatis and milk. And they would say, okay, then let him eat. Okay, so because then, but, um, but now I was like, no, that's not okay. So if he only eats, that's even more reason why you need to figure out a way to get out of that. So um, let's just make that point that, um, you know, those are our critical non-negotiables as well. But moving on, um, when his gut dysbiosis had gotten really bad, he had severe yeast issues. He used to be laughing throughout the day. He was not able to sleep. This is when we're using melatonin to help him sleep. He was very young, so it did work. He was about four at the time. And, but, the, yeah, but the gut dysbiosis was like beyond control. And so somehow, thankfully, I, come, I came across healing diets at the time. And I started with the body ecology diet because it allows for vegetarian um, mm-hmm. options. And at the time, um, I felt that the, the changes were not coming quickly enough. So we quickly moved. I, I did Honestly, I didn't give it that much time either. But I had started introducing some fish at the time. A body ecology diet recommends it. And then uh, it was... It was the the rules were not strict enough for me at the time. I felt like okay, I need something more. So we quickly went to the GAPS diet and um, and which was very meat centered, and it involves a lot of cooked meats and broths that make the protein more accessible, more bioavailable to the child. And I think initially I did see like I did see a, a new child. So initially, like it really very quickly helped with the. Even though we were also giving an allopathic medication for yeast, it would always come back at the time. We would give an antifungal and it would come back, but the gaps really helped it stick because it restricts the kind of carbohydrates that you eat. So a lot of the healing diets are restricted carbohydrate diets. And it's very hard to do this while vegetarian because you cannot restrict if you don't get a complete meal. I I don't recommend it. so you have to, you need animal, you need, you need bone broth and you need, um, if, if you're doing a restricted Yeah, that's like a paleo diet, isn't it? Because recently I came across so many people sharing images and charts of what is a paleo diet in a women's group. And they uh, were, all of them were trying to apply it to a vegetarian uh, and that really doesn't. So if you want to be vegetarian or vegan, then find that approach. So I don't think trying to box that into a diet that's been created with an animal uh, source in mind will really work so that's an important thing that people should note yes i uh, over years i don't think that a vegetarian diet can be a restricted carbohydrate diet so i i, I think that because most vegetarian sources of nutrients are carbohydrates and yes and while we're not vilifying carbohydrates at all i mean uh, they're uh, no absolutely, absolutely not yeah yeah but living in India, you can't, uh, you cannot uh, vilify carbohydrates for sure. You should not also, right? Nobody should vilify a macronutrient. But yes, uh, but the but but the healing diets, the way the the thinking works is that when you restrict a certain type of carbohydrate, you're restricting food for the bacteria. So you restrict uh, anything fermentation. Than, yeah. Uh, and fermentation, growth, everything. So not just SIBO, but also like down the line in your large intestine. You're not giving yeah any any food for the bacteria. So you eat only simple carbs, which will um, or monosaccharides, which will like immediately get absorbed. So therefore, you can eat fruits, but you um, you can't really you know eat grains or le- even lentils initially. So for six months, we were on this diet with a with a lot. I mean, I think he would eat like he was so hungry. He suddenly became so hungry. He would eat quarter to a half pound of chicken every day in the afternoon. I think it's a, like it was a lot. You used to eat a lot of meat. But then the changes um, uh, plateaued mm-hmm. out 
and in fact we had chronic constipation we had to you know we had to really we, we were really struggling and then we had to stop and come back to a baseline diet which is actually when you eat a lot of fermented grains you can still be lower carb because fermentation uses carbs so i would say that right now he's on a primarily vegetarian diet with very occasional fish which was like a couple of times a month maybe once a month actually and um but the grains that he eats are primarily fermented so um and he he does how? well when i how, how what form of, what kind of what do you mean fermented grains so is it like idlis mm-hmm. yeah mostly so idlis dosas and even if i give him adai or pesaret or something like that i let the dal and even though that's not our culture to always ferment adais but he i let i let them ferment uh, for a little bit so he he has mostly grains in those forms not all, not um, only but mostly so uh, he actually like just plain rice and all doesn't so he doesn't he, he cannot give him a very high carb diet because the gut dysbiosis comes back very quickly so we are actually in a vegetarian diet where the grains are mostly fermented and um, lots of vegetables um some occasional fish so he he personally does not enjoy i don't think we could go back to that kind of a meat based diet it's just not our lifestyle and i i cannot cook like that mm. and also i just just feels uncomfortable yeah. but as a healing diet it totally has its place and it 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 has a role but remember that all healing diets have to come to an end i have met people who have been on gaps for 4 years this is not meant to be it is not that kind of none of these diets are the except for in a basic anti inflammatory diet no, no diet should be uh, so long because you're you'll be rapidly changing your microbiome composition not for the better because you are eating very limited um, fibers interesting point vaish and uh, so you're saying that i'm actually um, fascinated to know that sid is now predominantly on a vegetarian diet because that's what was my concern that everywhere diets uh, prescribed or created for children with disabilities are very animal centric and that's not really applicable by many many people in india so i that's a very good point so you're just saying that whatever you do just ferment the greens and the lentils a little bit more than you normally would Yes, but uh, so I'm also saying point. that if your child is suffering from dysbiosis, if if you feel like, how do you know if it's dysbiosis? Um, a lot of times it's testing, but if your child is very dysregulated with lots of mood issues, and if your testing uh, is showing yeast again, yes, lot of gas, lot of bloating. Yes, absolutely, and um, and it's chronic and it's not going away even by eating a um, anti-inflammatory vegetarian diet. you may need a healing animal based diet for a short term so consider 3 to 6 months of going on a diet like gaps or scd or um or, or any of the other diets that may be applicable these are the two diets that generally work very quickly for uh, dysbiosis but any diet can be you know there are so many diets out there but um but don't don't you need to you need to come back you need to find your way into a stable Good diet point. that you can eat long term yeah i've seen i've seen kids who like this okay. is my general story with uh, healing diets is that some healing happens and then the child plateaus out but the parents are on the diet for a very long time on that forever 
Yeah. I think that happens to everybody, Vaish, not just parents of children with disability, because you constantly see people who've taken a supplement or done a diet for a particular reason, and then they're on that for the next two years, thinking it's the wonder diet. And uh, it's a very important point that you brought up that the diet is so wonderful because it is a short-term therapeutic diet with an intention behind it for whatever reason, which varies person to person. So before we conclude, just uh, tell us about one, uh, maybe some kind of an external therapy that you find very helpful when Sid has really sleeping challenges. Maybe a warm bath. I mean, whatever it is, is there some tool that's very simple, very practical with parents could apply and uh, help their children to improve sleep? For younger children, I would, I would, uh, there's a method called rhythmic movement therapy. So moving the body in short rhythms, it actually, actually give, it's very gentle, very non-invasive. You're literally letting the child lie down and there are three, four types of movement. You can look it up online. I think that the movements are, though I learned it from a practitioner, they're just like five or six movements and they can be done passively on the child. You're just kind of rocking the child in a way that can be really helpful. There's also um, a technique um, uh, called Qigong for kids. So that's Q-I-G-O-N-G, Qigong for, um, that has been adapted for kids with autism and Down syndrome. So there are also like six or seven movements that can be, the parent can just learn and do them at home. These were very helpful. It really, you know, brings the, uh, you know, brings your, brings a child from a fight or flight response to a rest and digest um, to a calming state. Um, Can you share bath. some of those links? Can you share some links to that so I can link yes. it to the yes, show notes? I, I will send them to you because I don't remember them on the top, off the top of my head. But I'll right. the rhythmic movement in Qigong I'll send. Um, Definitely Epsom salt baths can be helpful for some. We are not among that category, but it can, it can help. It can be very calming. And essential <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, it unfortunately even that varies from child to child. But for one thing that between rhythmic movement and Qigong, I've seen that, that it helps for everybody. So it's not um, like, you know, it really, uh, it's harder to do for older kids. Like, you know, if your child is really big, I mean, like a teenager or something, it's harder at that point. Um, right. Now this isn't very accessible, but getting a craniosacral therapist or a cranial osteopath, uh, getting regular appointments, especially if your child is experiencing neurological symptoms, and uh, and if you feel that it's stemming not from the gut but from the brain, um, then then I would or from a structural from a from a cranial structural uh, perspective where like like I said in Down syndrome, the middle part of the face and is more restricted and so on. Um, craniosacral and cranial osteopathy can be extremely helpful in sleep. None of these are something you can do at home. Obviously, you'll need a therapist. I know that in India nowadays, cranial, craniosacral therapy has become more common. But um, Yes, I have heard of people doing that. So yeah, would you I say that if somebody... Is available, right? So there are Marma techniques yes. where... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But would you say you said Epsom salt baths? So given the low muzzle tone, should parents have caution when doing that and probably should be supervised? Um, yeah. I, I mean, that depends on if you know how. Uh, my son sits in Epsom salt baths with no problem. I think that's uh, individual basis. I don't necessarily think if your child is normally okay without super, I haven't heard of any reason why they should okay. But especially because the magnesium absorption is not so high, it's, um, but um, 
it's it's pretty small it's you're not in, injecting it you're just absorbing it transdermally but um but i think like case by case basis parents would know if that is the case if they need to supervise um in terms of um i was going to say um another intervention but it just lost my mind i'll come back to it yeah um so why what do you think is the biggest root cause of sleep challenges among children with disabilities i know we can't put it down to just one cause across the board but what would you feel is probably the most um, um one of the re- common reasons among many many children east overgrowth gut dysbiosis east overgrowth um bad bacteria gut dysbiosis okay that can be east it can be um you know c diff it can be a bacterial infection um anything can even be viral in nature gut dysbiosis is is probably the most common so that means parents probably need to begin by taking out sugars absolutely yeah taking out sugars and um and you may need more than that you may need some herbs but at, from a dietary perspective definitely taking out sugars at adding in some you know perhaps some natural antifungal herbs um that you know you can ask wherever you are to, to what is um you know um, sometimes coconut oil is not enough to do the trick but you know just yeah even coconut oil and garlic and so on and um mm-hmm. yeah but often times if you're dealing with chronic uh, gut dysbiosis you need more than that you might need to speak to a practitioner to get that treat get that tested and treated yeah um so why should you speak about assume competence mm-hmm. or presume competence tell us about that statement as a something to leave our listeners or parents of children with disorders with a lot of hope when we talk about the stress part of not falling asleep right so one of the biggest causes of stress in a child's life can be the parent right so and parents think that children are the biggest cause of stress in their lives which uh, but i assure you that the opposite is more true than <laughs> so um you know i think um i i definitely b- before we even think of assuming competence first i think we need to get out of this culture of treating a child with disability as a burden as something to be fixed and as you know as somebody who is disrupting your sleep and ruining your life or whatever it is that society is in is conditioning you to think about that moment right so um a lot of times we talk about caregiver discomfort and um uh, you know how to support the caregiver and absolutely so important everything is important not at all dissing that aspect but i would say it's more important so remember that you know to remove ourselves from the center of the universe that the it's the experience is being undergone by the child not the parent right so yes the parent is a secondary thing but when we presume competence in the child when we presume that the child is capable of of learning of um of cognitive function when i use the word assuming competence i mean in a cognitive way though it can be used in any way okay but um but but just because your child has a diagnosis of autism down syndrome whatever just because you have been told your child has an intellectual disability remember that we have no true way of measuring a child's intellect we absolutely have no way um the brain is a mystery and you know it's it's a the only way we know the brain is plastic it's neuroplastic the only way into the brain are the senses 
okay? And we have sensory dysregulation. The only way out of the brain is motor. And many, many of our children have fine motor issues, okay? Or gross motor issues or both, okay? Um, they, if, you, if your child has cerebral palsy, for example, their motor may be severely restricted. So you neither have a good way um, to give good information to the brain, not, um, well, information comes in regardless, but you definitely don't have a good way to measure what the brain is, is sending out, right? So to assume that your child is, you know, go about telling people that we, we tell them all the time that I've also done this when my, when, son, when my son was younger that, oh, my child is just a two-year-old inside. My child has the mental capacity of a six-month-old and stuff like mm -hmm. that. When, when we put our own children down, we're doing this often in the presence of our own children. So forget about everything I've said in this podcast till now. If we are not giving the basic respect to a child as a competent human being, how, how will you be able to sleep if somebody around you is constantly talking about you like that to strangers and to doctors and to everybody? Like, how will you, how will you, you know, to sleep before everything else, you have to be content, right? You have to, like in, especially, I know you are a yogi, but even in the minimal yoga I learn, even when we're doing Shavasana, people say that, you know, you let go of, all your, um, you know, desire, not desires, but you let go of the day, you let go of whatever you want and everything. And you just like settle in that pose for five minutes, right? And um, if you're always, but imagine if your yoga instructor is constantly putting you down, will you even be able to do a Shavasana? So similarly, how for a child to sleep, um, the primary caregiver should be able to respect the child, the parent, right? And you may think, who are you to tell me to respect the child? I'm the mom. I love the child. Let me tell you that love is not the same as respect. Um, because unless Absolutely you... Absolutely agree. Very, yeah. very sensitive. Yeah. And if you, you have to first not convince yourself, okay? If the minute we start convincing ourselves, it's a lost cause. We have to know. It's just a shift from, you know, uh, that my child is fully capable. Something in the body is getting in the way. So many things. The body is, is so complex, but the body and the mind are not the same. We already know this. So we have no, when we have no insight into the mind, we, ha we have only one option. We have two options. We can assume that it's completely incapable or we can assume it's completely capable. And why not just assume it's completely capable? Just take, uh, it's just a mind shift. What difference is it going to make to you? But it's going to make all the difference to the child. And when you assume, you have to act accordingly. So in the sense that you give age-appropriate information to the child, you treat the child like an age-appropriate person. You don't have to treat them like a genius. But if your child is seven years old, you don't uh, do baby talk and you don't teach ABCD to them at that time. You treat them like you would teach, treat a neurotypical seven-year-old. And mm -hmm. that can make all the difference. Okay, Very profound. You love your child, but let's start treating them with the respect that they deserve. That's beautiful. Very, very profound and very sensitive. Uh, Vaish, one last um, uh, sleep whisperer mantra. So please finish the sentence. If sleep is the new medicine, then how would you complete that sentence? I was thinking about it a lot and I was really struggling with this. <laughs> but um, I'm going to end with something that I was not thinking of at all. So if the sleep is the new medicine, Respect should be your um, should be your primary tool or mantra. Wonderful, lots of takeaways, Vaish, and um, I will also. Where can people find you if they want further resources? On you've got a great podcast. So where 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 do you think that they need to go? 
if you want to listen to more, um, so every week I, I just tackle a new topic on functional nutrition or learning because I'm also a teacher and an educator. So my podcast is called Functional Nutrition and Learning for Kids. And you can find that on iTunes or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And my website is just functionalnutritionforkids.com. So, um, and yeah, you can, you can reach me there. I'm also on Facebook under um, Functional Nutrition for Kids. Thanks for being here today, Vaish. And uh, I think our listeners have got so much information, not just practical, lots of knowledge and a lot of hope as always, whenever I have conversations with you. Thanks for being here today. And um, uh, I think you've left a lot of people with immense hope. Thank you, Deepa. It's always, I, I always find myself saying nice things when I meet you. So. I thank you for uh, having me on your podcast. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed the show. Just a reminder that this podcast is for information purposes only. This is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified health professional. This information is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you are looking for personal help on your health journey, do seek out a medical practitioner. Please do make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with your doctor or otherwise qualified healthcare professional. It is in no way intended as medical advice as a substitute for medical counseling or as treatment or cure for any particular health condition. Be sure to always work directly with a qualified health practitioner before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle that may feel out of your realm of comfort or understanding. If you are looking for an allied functional medicine practitioner, do seek out more information on www.phytothrive.com or www.sleepwhisperer.pro. It is important that you have someone who is qualified and understands your health personally in order to provide adequate care, especially when it comes to chronic health conditions. Thank you.